Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Apple Finch Pudding, your gateway into the world of science. As this is our first episode, I will quickly explain the format of this monthly podcast. I am Jeroen Schreel, a postdoctoral researcher in plant sciences currently working at Florida International University. Every episode, I will be joined by a scientist and a co-host. The goal of the scientist is to explain his or her research in a way that is clear for everyone listening. The co-host and myself will function as some kind of reference to make sure that everything the scientist is saying is in fact clear and understandable. My co-host for today will be Peter Leus, a physiotherapist at the local community health center, also one of my best friends, and he recently became a first-time dad of his son, Elias. Welcome, Peter. How are you? Have you been able to get some sleep these last few nights? Uh, some sleep. Some sleep. Some <laughs> this, sleep. Uh, this night was a rough night, yeah. um, but, but uh, we can manage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but he, he's not even a month old yet, right? Uh, no, uh, tomorrow, three weeks. It'll be yeah. three weeks tomorrow. Yeah, so I'm still at home right now. Uh, starts work half of January again. So now all the, the attention can go to our son. Uh, so that's nice. All right, sounds good. Peter is having some Wi-Fi trouble, but I will be joined today by John Trido, also known as Jack, a PhD candidate in mechanical engineering and material sciences at Yale University. Besides being a PhD candidate, Jack also found time to co-found the Yale Biosoft Matter Journal Club. And as if that wasn't enough, Jack also did an internship before his PhD at the internationally acclaimed Portical Accelerator located at CERN in Switzerland. Jack, thank you for uh, willing to join us. How are you? I'm good, Jerome. Thanks for having me. Oh, glad to have you. My first question for you, what is your favorite science joke or science fact is also possible? Do you have one? I do. And if it's all right, I kind of want to do two because I was split between, um, I'm sort of split between my two favorites. Yeah, no problem. So my first favorite science joke is um, the following. Bartender says, we don't serve faster than light particles here. And a tachyon walks into the bar. <laughs> Laughter. Yeah, so, I think it's a really specific joke to physics. It's a very specific physics. Joke. <laughs> yeah, so a tachyon is a hypothetical particle that um, can travel faster than light. Okay. And there's a there's a um, a result in uh, special relativity that if something was allowed to travel faster than light, um, it would violate causality, and you would get all these weird uh, paradoxes. So um, that's a that's a causality joke. Okay. Uh, okay. That's, I I like it because it's it's so anti a joke. That yeah, it went right over my head though. But <laughs> yeah, oh, it's 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 niche for sure. Um, but my second favorite joke, uh, which is also not funny because it's a science joke, <laughs> this was told to me um, in uh, by a physics professor actually in my first year of physics in, during my bachelor's, um, which was there's a farmer who um, his cows keep getting sick, and there's a university down the road, so the university sends their top bio biologist, their top chemist, and their top physicist to see if they can figure out his problem. Um, and so the biologist says, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to dress down the cows. We're going to look at their physiology. We're going to check out their tissues. We're going to do samples of their organs. We're going to look at their DNA. We're going to do genetics testing. We're going to look at all of these things. And then we're going to make a complete picture using all of the biological tests that we can do on the cows to sort of to try and figure out what's wrong with them. But then the chemist says, no, 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 that's not going to work. We have to go deeper. We have to go and look at the chemical structure 
of their bile. We have to do chemical testing. We have to do mass spectrometry. We have to look at all of the different chemicals in the cow and that's going to give us the most complete picture of why they're sick. And then the physicist says, no, 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 this is all incorrect. What we have to do is we have to develop a model. And luckily I've developed the perfect model of the cow in order to figure out why they're sick and to heal them. And everyone says, okay, what's your model? And the physicist goes, great. This is uh, so great. Let's, uh, let's, let's, let's do my thing. Um, so he gets out his chalkboard and he says, okay, first, assume the cow is a sphere. And that's the punchline. Um, <laughs> that, that's actually a good one. Yeah, and I think it's great because um, it's 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 the most uh, self awareness that you'll hear from physicists. Because um, and you'll hear this at conferences too. People will be like, "Yes, yeah, so this model is kind of the spherical cow, but whatever." And um, it, I think it gets at something deep in the heart of physics, which is um, that uh, you know it's that line: uh, all models are wrong, some models are useful. That is. That is physics at its at its at its deepest core, and I think that joke um, sort of sort of references that. So that's like that's the one joke that you'll hear like used professionally. Uh, people love that joke, so that's that's why it's my favorite. Yeah, I also have the feeling that say like it's a sphere, or it only works in a vacuum. But exactly, only works in the vacuum. It's a sphere. You have to, you know, it's it's homogeneous. There's constant. Something is constant, which is the, you know you're treating something constant that's not constant um you know uh it's uh you you like forget about every detail except the detail you think is important and that's that's what physics is at its at its, at its core is forgetting about everything else except the important stuff well uh, i actually really like that joke um i i also have one horrible joke i don't know why but i really love it so you have a biologist a chemist and a statistician and they go hunting and uh, they see a deer And the biologist is like, okay, fine. I'm gonna, yeah, we're gonna try. And he shoots at one meter to the left. Oh shit. And the, the, uh, the deer runs off, but then it stands still again. And the chemist is like, okay, I'm gonna try again. Okay, it's my turn, my turn. He shoots one meter to the right. Oh shit. And the statistician calls, yes, we got it. <laughs> I love that joke. <laughs> that's the perfect, because that's also, that's like the core of statistics. It's just like you sample and then you get a mean, but you don't have, you haven't sampled that much. So uh, that is, yeah, I was thinking about using that one, but um, I decided on the other ones, but that's a great I'm glad one. you didn't. I only prepared one, so. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. I didn't steal your thunder then. Okay, so your joke already uh, showed us you're clearly a physicist, but you have a lot of branches in physics. You have mechanics, you have photonics. What are you doing and what branch are you working? Can you explain that? Yeah, so I, um, when I was in undergraduate, you know, yeah, you, you're sort of uh, presented with all these different options. And you start to see that the field has many, many distinct subtypes. There's particle physics, there's, yeah, photonics, there's, uh, you know, really cold atoms, there's astrophysics. Um, but what I really liked was um, broadly, is broadly now called um, condensed matter. Um, which is the study of the phases and properties of matter and materials. Um, so, you know, condensed matter is very broad in and of itself. So there's the study of how electrons flow in metals. There's the study of how um, different materials change phase. Uh, so like how water freezes, that's condensed matter. Um, but my sub area of physics is um, often referred to as soft condensed matter. So I'm really interested in um, the material and, you know, matter 
properties of um, soft things, uh, which uh, is exactly what it sounds like. So um, materials that are squishy. Uh, so things like foams, um, you know, shaving cream, uh, emulsions like mayonnaise uh, or peanut butter is also an emulsion. This is basically the physics of food. And um, the reason that I think these materials are interesting is because they often, um, I think, uh, challenge our understanding of phases. So, you know, you learn in grade school that there are three phases of matter. There's solid, liquids, and gases, but uh, soft materials often somehow live between phases. So like mayonnaise, um, you can scoop it and spread it, but if you let it sit on a table, it's not going to flow. It's going to stay it's going to stay in a pile. Um, and so that's kind of like a solid and a liquid at the same time. Is that something like non-Newtonian fluids or something? Or Yeah, right, exactly. So non-Newtonian fluid is a type of soft matter. And non-Newtonian just means that in normal fluids, so Newtonian fluids, the flow rate is proportional to how fast you push the fluid, which you know we refer to as the strain rate. And uh, non-Newtonian fluids, the flow rate is not directly proportional to the strain rate. You could have some fluids that you push really, 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 you, you try to strain really fast, but it doesn't flow. And then it'll like flow really quickly. Um, or it maybe flows way faster, even though you're not stirring that fast. So that type of behavior you'll get when you basically mix different materials together. So like if you put cornstarch in water, and so this is, if you've ever seen videos of people like walking on Ublek, Yeah, so it's yeah. called ublex sometimes, and people like be able to walk on fluid, but then people also be able to swim in it. That is a prototypical non-Newtonian fluid. If you hit it really hard, then it's it comes like solid. When if you stand still on it, you will sink in it, right? Exactly right. So you can run on it, but you can't like walk on it. Um, and yeah, so that's that's exactly right. And um, you get that by just mixing cornstarch into water. So if you get cornstarch, if you have cornstarch in your kitchen, you just pour it into a little bit of water. What you'll notice is if you stir it slowly, and my cooks do this all the time, you have to, if you stir it slowly, it'll be able, you'll be able to basically have, it'll, it'll be like a thick, it'll be like honey. But if you, if you stir it really fast, you'll notice that it's like kind of trying to stir into sand or something. Is there an easy way to explain why that is happening or not really? Um, this, this is a very active area of research. So the, um, and I hope, I hope if anybody who studies, um, non-browning suspensions uh, and things like cornstarch and water mixtures. If they're listening, I'm sorry if I butcher this, but um, basically the what people are trying to understand is, um, so the cornstarch grains are immersed in water. And this only, you only get this non-Newtonian behavior when the cornstarch grains are really densely packed. So when there, when there are a lot of cornstarch grains per unit volume of water. Um, and so I think what is, basically understood is that the corn grains are getting stuck. They can't, you know, when there's lots of open room for them, if you try to stir it, they're just going to be able to flow past each other. But if there are too many of them, they start to bump into each other. And that bumping into each other, you know, sort of at the macro scale is the thing that allows you to sort of walk on it is that locally the, the um, cornstarch grains can't move. Why that happens though, is it because they're getting stuck together? Is it because there are you know, little liquid bridges between each particle that keep them trapped. Um, the specifics, I think, is not understood, but it's basically because the corn grain, the uh, cornstarch grains get jammed and they um, and they can't flow.
Okay. Well, that's also really interesting. So it's not 100% clear why it is happening, right? Yeah. So this is, this is the, uh, people, people know that the cornstarch grains are doing something, but what is not clear is exactly how, you know, in, you know, to get, to get to the real bit mystery of like exactly how the cornstarch grains are interacting and what interactions are causing them to get stuck. That is not, that is not currently known. And this is, I think the, uh, this is one of the reasons I really like soft condensed matter because yeah, all the materials are stuff you find, you can find in your kitchen. Your mayonnaise, your peanut butter. Exactly. Yeah. All your, all your spreads. Um, and uh, it's often referred to as the science of the everyday. Um, so actually, so I'm in Connecticut and Connecticut just had a huge snowstorm. So we have about eight inches of snow outside. Snow is also a classic soft condensed matter because, you know, um, things like snow or sand, um, gravel, uh, they pile and they can flow, but they're made up of solid objects. And for example, on snow, you can walk on it. You know, you can walk, you're not, gonna, it's not, you're not always just going to sink to the bottom. It's eventually going to get compacted enough that it's basically a solid. Um, and so these are all materials that we have lots of everyday experience with. And so we might think that they're simple, but they're actually quite complex. That's really cool. Okay. So you explained, uh, you, you work on, uh, soft matter physics and, what do you do exactly? So you have a lot of work that is possible in soft matter physics, but what, what is your research? Right. So, um, yeah, there's lots of different soft materials, but in my view, I think the most interesting soft material um, is us. So people are squishy. People. You know, okay. So we're soft materials. We are soft materials. We are living, breathing, evolving soft materials, all of biology. And so this is how I sort of got into biological physics, which is the physics of living systems, um, because I think there's a nice sort of interface between the physics of soft, squishy things that are sort of liquid, sort of solid, and lots of different problems in biology. Um, and in particular, I'm most interested in the physics of collections of cells that make up tissues. So I like studying squishy collections of cells and how they come together to give tissue their various mechanical and structural properties. And are you then talking about tissues in Petri dishes or in complete organisms? Uh, I think I think both are cool. Um, the great thing about physics is physics has a level of abstraction to it. So when you study models of things, you really can study anything because you're not studying anything in particular. Um, so what I do in my day-to-day -day is I actually build computational models of collections of cells. And because I'm doing computational models um, and not studying things specifically, uh, we can sort of study abstract general properties of any collection of cells. Okay. Um, and so it could be, they could be in a Petri dish. There are lots of interesting things that cells do in Petri dishes, but also if it's in a living organism, what we call in vivo. Okay. So You're working actually on the models to help other scientists to understand more clearly what is happening in tissue in vivo. That's right. Because yeah, so I'm working on the spherical cow. Um, my, my, my uh, the models that we develop um, don't actually directly correspond to anything in particular, but what we do is we work with um, experimental scientists who actually do work with real things. And our models will help inform and um, explain things that are observed in experiments and their experiments will then also help inform what models we should work on. Okay. And when you say 
models um because you have a lot of different types of models uh, you have models that are just equations and numbers but you also have 3d renderings and stuff what is it you're focusing on a mixture of both or right um yeah so the models that we work on um they are they sort of live yeah so you sort of um and i think your point is totally correct when you think about the vast panoply of different types of models that you can work on some are pure just equations and the result of the solving the equation is the is somehow the model and then also you can get very specific models that you see in computer graphics um and uh you know 3d renderings that are hyper realistic um we're sort of somewhere in the middle so we have a decent amount of abstraction to our model but we also sort of try to contain some realistic specificity in the models we construct and the type of modeling that i do this is this is some this is some technical jargon for you is called molecular dynamics okay that's something you'll have to explain yeah right so it, it's not a very good name because we don't really model molecules yeah that's a horrible name then yeah right exactly find something new jack find a new name yeah um sometimes it's called discrete element modeling but uh, we call it molecular dynamics, unfortunately. And so what molecular dynamics are is basically when you, in the computer, you m somehow model the dynamics. So dynamics in physics just means the time evolution. So how things evolve and move um, in space and time. Um, you model many discrete objects collectively interacting. Um, so this was first, so these techniques to basically model many, many things interacting at, at a given time, they were first developed to study molecular systems. So like how a bunch of water molecules in a, um, you know, I have a water bottle here filled with water. This is, has something like 10 to the 23 mo water molecules all bumping into each other and binding and unbinding. And so let's say we wanted to get some microscope in my bottle of water and we wanted to see all the molecules interacting and bouncing around now that's impossible in reality um you can't get a movie of the water molecules because you know no camera is small enough is yeah no camera exists that uh could could possibly see all those fast interactions the, the resolution isn't high enough exactly the red yeah so and and it's not the time resolution is also not you know these these interactions are very fast but let's say we wanted to know like you know, when water molecules are bumping into each other, um, what are the conditions in the water between the water molecules that allows them to like freeze into ice, for example. And so what you can do in a computer is you can actually tell the computer to basically keep track of like um, millions of water molecules and also keep track of how they all interact. And you can simulate all of these water molecules bumping around and interacting with each other not there's some limitations because computers aren't perfect um but you can start to get at the resolution of all these water molecules um bumping around and interacting um, and you can make things like that start to look like movies of these water molecules and you can use these simulations to learn something about the real system um so that's uh so the techniques in order to do that is called molecular dynamics we do that not with water molecules but with cells so we put up we have computer simulations of many cells that are all bumping around and interacting. And we use the techniques developed for things like water molecules, but we apply them to biological systems like cells filled with tissues filled with cells. 
Okay. Yeah, because I'm also thinking every model you have to validate with measurements. I can imagine that you are able to do some measurements on cells, but on water molecules must be a different that kind of thing, right? Yeah, I mean, you, you bring, I think uh, you bring up a good point. You know, the simulations we do are just that. They're just simulations. They're not real. And so an important part is we have, let's say, with the water molecule example, you know, I have some water molecules bumping around. How do I validate that the simulation is real? Well, in my simulation, I'll have something like a temperature and I can change the temperature to whatever I want in the computer. You know, do my water molecules freeze at zero degrees Celsius? If they do, then my simulation probably has some realistic components to it. Um, and so we do the same thing in, in our simulations of cells. What we'll do is we'll construct the model, we'll run some simulations, and then we'll try to poke and prod the model um, and get some measurements of what's happening in the simulation. And then we'll collaborate with some experimentalists and say, do the same thing to the real system. Do they behave similarly? And if they do, then we can say, oh, the stuff, the ingredients that we put into our model, they must be somehow realistic. Yeah. So actually, you're, the thing that you're modeling and you're measuring are different variables, and you're trying to see if I change one parameter, like temperature, does the cell shape, for example, or how they connect change as well? Yeah, exactly. The stuff that I do in my simulations is, uh, yeah, I change something, and I just see if my simulation responds to that change in the same way that an experimental system would respond. It's, um, it's all about trying to get your simulation to somehow recapitulate what is seen in experiments. And that's really important because um, the simulations uh, that we construct lack, I'd say, you know, the vast majority of the actual complexity of a real system. So this gets back to my spherical cow joke. The models that we create lack a lot of detail that is included in reality. So back to the water, water bottle example, water molecules are incredibly complicated molecules, even though it's just a oxygen and two hydrogens. Now, oxygen and two hydrogens, when you put them in a molecule, um, like the, the, the molecule can have different shapes, the way that the hydrogens interact with each other and other hydrogens in your beaker of water, uh, those are quite complicated. People will model them and they'll neglect a lot of that specificity. So they won't model all of the complex quantum physics and chemistry of actual hydrogen atoms. They'll maybe pretend like they're little spherical balls that want to slightly attract each other. But if you can get a very simple simulation to somehow recapitulate something real, like the freezing temperature of water, that sort of tells you, A, I have a simulation of water, so I can study water now, and B, apparently this thing that I'm studying, like the freezing temperature of water, is not so dependent on all of the complex microscopic chemistry and quantum physics of hydrogen atoms and oxygen atoms. It's somehow some collective thing of all of them interacting together in the simpler way that is contributing to the physical observation. And so simple models that recapitulate experiments, it tells you what is the relevant physics for some observation. And so that's why we use simple models because we're trying to get at what are the what's the relevant physics. Even though we know we're neglecting real stuff, we're just trying to figure out, we're trying to boil it down to its essentials. Ah, here. Hey, Peter. Hi. Nice to meet you. 
Nice to meet you too. Maybe some small recap of what we discussed already, Jack. Right. I am a soft condensed matter physicist. So I study squishy things like basically anything in your pantry. So mayonnaise, et cetera. But I also study uh, the most important squishy thing, in my opinion, which is us, biological systems, life. Life is squishy, basically, um, except for trees. Don't talk down on trees, Jack. No, no, I, <laughs> I love trees. And that's why, that's why I, I really like trees be, uh, because, um, oh, because you're a tree specialist, right? Well, I'm, I'm an ecophysiologist and I, I focus on tree functioning. So, uh, but it, trees are, trees are, it's, uh, it's hard. It's always hard for me to like, you know, we're, I, I'm learning about, beyond you know, the physicist. So I'm learning about biology every time I do it. And then I think about trees and I'm like, well, how's that happen? Like, I would love to hear about the, the very squishy versus non-squishy things that are happening in trees. Um, like, I still don't know how, why trees are, are stiff, but, um, the way I study all of these, you know, different things. Um, is that I do computational simulations. So I will try to recreate some physical system in my computer and then work with experimentalists to see if my simulation is correct, but then also to help their experiments, you know, guide the experimental observations that they want to make. Okay, sounds interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, actually, as a result of your recap, I'm also thinking, so you say you study cells and squishy things, but do you focus on animals or on plants or both that's a that's a great question um so uh i have two answers to that and um because so my i sort of don't study either and this i think gets back to the spherical cow thing um so oh, peter you missed a really great joke about spherical cows um that your own will have to tell you later also we we have to listen to peter's joke later <laughs> oh right yeah you have right. to i we can't, we can't let you leave without the joke. Um, but um, because I'm doing computational simulations and because physics sometimes abstracts, you know, you, you sort of take a step back from a lot of specificity to try to learn general things. Um, I, I sort of, I study the abstraction of a cell more than the cell. And so I can kind of study both plants and animals. Um, that being said, uh, so in, in some sense, I'm studying neither. But in another sense, I have worked on projects that have studied both. So uh, I've um, worked on, you know, tumor cells invading breast tissue. I've worked on the cells in developing zebrafish embryos. And I've also studied plants. So um, I like it all. And this gets back to the, you know, the spherical cow thing. You can kind of study everything when you do physics because you're studying nothing. So I've been very fortunate in my PhD. I've been able to work on a lot of things. That seems to be a broad field. Totally. It's, it's at the, yeah, biological physics is, as it has its, has its um, fingers in many pies is an expression we have in English. So uh, yeah, it's very broad. You can work on anything. Right. Uh, before we forget, Peter, what is your joke? My joke? Well, I was uh, going to ask you um, something more about the title. Do, uh, what is for you the difference between an apple and a finch? <laughs> the difference between an apple and a finch? Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't think of one, you know, it's just like, they're so similar. Um, one, one has feathers. Yeah. For, for you, they're both spheres, right? Yeah. Yeah. They, right. Actually to me, they're the same. So. Yeah. The reason I was wondering is because personally I wouldn't really make budding out of finches, but <laughs> I would yeah. out of apples. So yeah. yeah. Okay. I get it. That's actually, that's actually a funny joke. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my joke was way less funny than that. 
Um, <laughs> no, no, so, it was, the, the, he had two jokes. The first one went straight over my head. The second one was really funny. That was a spherical one. But the name Apple Finch Pudding is actually coming from the apple of Newton's apple, Finch of Darwin's Finches. And pudding is actually from a plum pudding model by Thompson. And we just combined those in a one single dish, I guess. And I, it's nice because you got, you got physics, biology, and chemistry in there in one, in one beautiful soup. The sociologists are probably a little bit mad about that, but that's okay. I don't really have mathematics there as well, but physics and mathematics, it's, it's not the same, but you have some overlap, right? They're very similar. Don't let a mathematician hear that, by the way. They'll get very angry, but they're very similar. Um, <laughs> I mean, Newton, Newton, was a, Newton was a mathematician, so yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. That's that, true. That, that, that counts for two. Okay. Oh. If you ask a mathematician, they'll say Newton was a mathematician. And if you ask a physicist, they'll say Newton was a physicist. But Newton was a physicist. He was, he was a bit of a polymath. That's the thing, right? Now every scientist is studying one really small, specific thing. And in those days, a scientist knew something of everything. Well, I, I, I one time heard, um, okay, so somebody in high school, like a high school teacher told me this, and I, I, it's always stuck with me. And I have no idea where, like, how to actually, know, you know, where this comes from. But he basically said, yeah, so, like, if you look at knowledge, it used to be, like, if you were a scientist, you did everything, basically. Everybody was a polymath because everybody worked on everything all the time. And then it slowly starts to specialize, specialize, specialize until you get to, like, the 20s. And then science becomes hyper-specialized, especially when you get to like molecular biology and everyone's looking at one individual protein, et cetera. But, but then, but, and then it gets very, very specialized, but now it's starting to broaden again um, because interdisciplinary things are, are very, you know, in vogue. So like I do, I'm interdisciplinary, but apparently this isn't just biological physics. It's like everything's becoming interdisciplinary. So we're, we're coming back out again. I mean, it's still specialized, but things are broadening every day. Yeah, but I think that there's a lot of interesting things to find out by working interdisciplinary because when you're so specific you know a lot about such a small part of of science that you really don't know anything about all the rest you're losing the overview and the links between the different parts that's true because everything's connected you know um we're getting metaphysical right now i think this is this is this is like one of my favorite topics is is the you know basically yeah meta meta science so thinking about thinking about how the science of science, like every, everything is connected. Like everything I do, you know, I, I do computational simulations that requires programming. So that's computer science basically. But then also the computer science of like thinking how to make algorithms efficient. I use lots of mathematics. I study biological systems. I'm a physicist. I'm in a mechanical engineering department. You can't, you can't have anything. And like, you know, if you study anything, you're using the tool developed by some other field. So and you are soft matter yourself, so you're a part of your own research. And I am actually soft matter. That's a great point. So is pudding. Pudding is a is the best soft matter. You, you should start studying pudding. I know. Yeah, I should. I should start. Well, maybe I should just make it and eat it. That'd be even better. As long as there's no finches in it, I'm, uh, I'm with it. I'll, I'll put a little bit of finch in there. <laughs> just a little, little, drop of, little drop of sparrow. Never hurt anybody. Yeah, it has a nice crunch to it, like the beak or something. Yeah. Little bones, yeah, a little bit of bones. Yes, yeah. yeah, never hurt anybody. You actually make, you can make bone jelly. There's lots of collagen in bones. They use it for a lot of candies, right? Yeah, I think like basically, if you had gelatin in like the 1800s, like in London or something, it'd be there'd be some bone broth from there. That, that you basically get all that all that nice gelatin, gelatinous 
goop from bones. And also for, for the coloration of, of uh, candy, they need, um, except uh, especially for, for red, I think they need ground lice to... Uh, ah, really? Still? To get the color, yeah. yeah. Ground lice? Like, you mean like hair lice? And not specifically hair lice, but a, a type of lice, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I know ancient Greeks and stuff, they made colorings from all types of animals or yeah, insects or plants or whatever. But I did, didn't know they still use those. Yeah, well, I mean, if you've ever had, um, I mean, if you've ever had, you guys have ever had ramen, like really good Japanese ramen. If you let it, if you take it home and you let it sit in your fridge, you're going to get basically the most perfect jello sitting right at the top because ramen has lots of fat in it and it just all will just phase separate to the top <laughs> of the of your container and you can like scoop it out. So it's, it's a little gross, but um, it's, that's what makes ramen so good is all that fat. Um, so, so you actually eat like spoons of fat? Well, you, you put it in the microwave and then it remixes and then it's delicious again. No, because you, you say like you can spoon it out. And I was like, you spoon it out and eat the fat or something? Maybe a little bit, maybe a little, you know. Uh, no, I would, I would not do that. I would reheat it, but. Um, yeah, I, I don't trust you, Jack. You would definitely eat the fat. Okay, I'll take a little, little pinky. Um, okay, I'm gonna go to the next question. Um, yeah, we're getting a little off topic here, but yeah, I'm happy yeah. to talk about bone jelly for the rest of the day. Yeah, that's also fine if you want. It's also science, right? That's all. It's all science, baby. <laughs> so you're near the end of your PhD research. Mm -hmm. Do you want to stay in academia, and why do you or do, don't you? That's a great question. Um, I do. So I am currently in the uh, wonderful stage of my life where I'm looking for a job, um, which is which we all know is a very fun endeavor. But yeah, I would like to stay in academia. Um, that was a decision that I uh, I sort of mulled over in my head for a long time because on the one hand I really like science and I really like research, um, but on the other hand, you know, academia is really hard. You know, there's fewer jobs um, than I might like. And also there's lots of cool stuff in industry. Like you can, you know, I could pivot and I could do something more applied. I could work on a product. I could work for a nonprofit. Um, I, you know, I could work in science policy and advocate for science. Um, but I think I stuck with academia because um, one, I really like intellectual freedom and academia seems like a way to, to get that. Um, but I also really like teaching. So I think it's great that you guys are doing this podcast because I think communicating about science and, and teaching somebody Something new about science that they never heard before, I think, is a very rewarding endeavor. So, because uh, I like research and I like teaching enough, I I decided to to stay in academia. So, I'm looking for a postdoc. Yeah, as of now. Right. Thank you also for the for the compliment. Uh, we're really happy that you're willing to talk about your research here. But I, I do get it. I was really also thinking about: Do I want to stay in academia or don't I? And I want to do research, but most of the time, I want to do it because. I want to know how it works and it, it's fun. And in the industry, if it works, it's fine. You don't need to know why. Make it work. Yeah. It's more of the, it's what like, it's kind of like the, the end is the journey. Like you're really just trying to get somewhere, but in research, the journey is the, is the goal is, is more, it's more of the exploration than uh, actually getting somewhere. That, that's almost a Brandon Sanderson quote from Stormlight Archives. Oh. That, and that's me. That's my pseudonym. I'm Brandon. No, I'm just yeah. <laughs> I, I've never heard of that before, but that's, oh, that's uh, cool. Amazing uh, fantasy. It's uh, what was the quote? Um, Journey before destination. I agree. At least that's totally my man after my own heart. 
So what you like most about academia is actually that the intellectual freedom. Yeah. And I mean, and it's, and it's kind of, you know, it's, it's totally incorrect to say that it's, there's, you know, infinite intellectual freedom. I mean, you always are beholden to something like, you know, now I'm beholden to the projects that I was given for my PhD for my next job. It'll be the project that I've been given to as my, you know, by my, you know, potential postdoctoral advisor you always need to be relevant. You can't just work on anything. It needs to have, you know, there's something needs to be some eventual benefit to society, I think. And, um, and then I, I guess eventually, you know, the dream is to become, you know, faculty somewhere. Uh, then you're beholden to what the government will give you money to do. So it's not pure freedom, but I think it's freer. There's a lot of, there's a lot more freedom than you'd get potentially in like an industry job. And that's not totally true. Like I've, I've had people in industry tell me that there's lots of really rich, rewarding intellectual experiences that you could have working for a company. But, um, you know, academia does, does seem to have, you know, the ability to, I, I would like to have my own lab and to like work on my own projects and like, you know, explore my own ideas. That does sound very um, exciting to me. I totally understand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I agree though. Like, and like I said, it's, it's different in industry, but you have other benefits. Let's put it like that in academia, we're often limited by funds. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is not always the best. Um, and that is, I think a big stressor in a lot of academics lives is this sort of constant search for funding because, but you know, I mean, you're, well, I'm not, I'm not, you know, you got to get paid to, to give something, you know, you only get money if you, if you deliver. And um, I think what we do is, is super important and relevant. And it basically is, you know, I think science has given the world modernity. You know, we have basically scientists have constructed the world, but it's like you construct, you do something and then it like has an impact 50 years later. And it's not you who's doing the impact. It's like somebody who read your paper. So it's um, yeah, it's, it's often a, it's, it's hard to, you know, I think convince people all the time that that is, why that's why it's relevant to fund basic research but i mean i think that's that's the that's why there's funding is because that's true yeah because I, I heard somewhere i don't know the exact numbers but it was about 80 between 80 and 90 percent of of fundamental research has no real applications but the mm -hmm. 10 to 20 percent that do far to outweigh the costs of those 80 percent that don't have an application right yeah no totally and there's even like you know you, if you think about like the people who invent the things in our lives that have, you know, made our, our lives so different, like, you know, cell phones, for example. Or this recording. Or yeah, the, the thing that we're talking on right now, the, the internet, the recording device, the computer, um, software engineers, all that stuff was invented by people who were taught basic research. And they maybe were basic researchers and they moved into more, they used what they were studying and they, you know, then, then brought that to industry or they read the work of people who were doing basic research. Um, and like, that's, there's kind of like this flow of information that like, you know, it, there's, there's the mathematicians who are working on, you know, insane hyperbolic geometry problems that no one ever re really care about. And then it all sort of flows down until you get to like, technology and then that's like that's modernity so yeah i think it's um it's difficult i think to convince people of it sometimes because it's not always clear and we don't i think i i personally think we don't really understand how knowledge works you know we know that it's shared but like you can't trace out the exact lineage of every idea it's also like the hard thing when you like to try transfer knowledge mm -hmm. you're, you're always losing information in the transfer like if mm -hmm. you're reading a paper it's not the same as knowing what the 
person is doing when he's actually doing it. You're also always losing some information that might be important, but they, you don't really know. And that, and that makes it really hard to be like, oh, like, you know, the cell phone was invented because, uh, you know, 50 years ago, this electrical engineering researcher was studying, you know, this particular thing about this transistor. Like, because, yeah, because like knowledge transfer is a messy, uh, you know, very human endeavor. Uh, do you know touchpads that was invented in CERN? Oh, really? That's something I heard as well. So I hope it's correct. But <laughs> they told me that they had like too many buttons. So it wasn't, they weren't <laughs> able to probably work. And so mm -hmm. they make the touchpad that they could swipe with and have different buttons. And you had wow. actually, the, the touchpad was invented at CERN, but it took like, I don't know, almost a decade before it got to the regular uh, society. Well, the internet was, was invented at CERN too. Really? Everything's invented at CERN? Everything was invented at CERN, basically. <laughs> yeah, the World Wide, the World Wide Web um, was initially a document sharing service that CERN developed, that this particular science scientist at CERN developed so that they could um, share data between um, disjoint places. And so whenever people are like, oh, why do we spend all this money on CERN? It's like, maybe it's a good point. Maybe, maybe it's hard to really see the reason for, you know, studying why, you know, what the Higgs boson is. Um, but they gave us the internet. I mean, come on, that's like, it was a $20 billion, you know, uh, investment that gave us like a $15 trillion thing. So yeah, that's, uh, that's already insane. Yeah. It's already, it already paid for itself. Which is now the best way to share knowledge, um, because we're talking about losing knowledge, but the internet, I think is the best way to share the knowledge we have and to uh, make everything available to to everyone. I mean, look at us. You guys are in Belgium. I'm in yeah. Connecticut. Come on. <laughs> well, the internet is also a really hard one when you're talking about sharing knowledge. If you want, you can find a lot of wrong information. Let's put it like that. It's unfortunately, it's a very powerful tool and tools can be used and misused. Yeah. It works both ways. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. W when you were a kid, did you also want to become a scientist or did you want to become something else? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so my parents are both academics. So my dad's a chemist and my mom's an economist. So I kind of did not for any deep reason, but just because um, I like my parents and uh, I like what they did and they seem, and it, it's also like, like I, I remember I was in like third grade and I was asking, I was like, what'd your parents do their PhD in? Like I had this, I had this total bubble and they're like, what are you talking about? My, my parents didn't do a PhD. Like no one does a PhD. Um, and I, I sort of was insulated in this environment um, where I sort of thought everybody was a scientist. So that I think is, I'm sort of biased in that way. Um, but I will say I was a super curious kid. I didn't know that I wanted to be a scientist, but um, I was obsessed when I was a kid uh, with sharks. With sharks? Yeah, I'm still obsessed, actually. Um, I love sharks. I have shark posters in my room at home. I wish I had more shark stuff here. Yeah, I was going to say, that's why you removed the shark poster when we started the recording. You can yeah, right, leave yeah. it up. <laughs> my, leave it up. It's my, fine. My huge Jaws movie poster. I had to, I had to, I, I was embarrassed about that. Um, no, I mean, I, I wish I had shark stuff in here, but um, I love, I love sharks. And I love, I love great white sharks for no reason. Yeah, I, yeah, I was going to ask why great white sharks, but yeah, they're for the, no reason. They're the biggest shark. Like I've never been able to figure this out. Like I love them. I, you know, so I, every every fall, uh, my girlfriend always gives me crap about this. Um, Cape Cod, uh, shark season in Cape Cod is always in the fall, and there are great whites that are just like patrolling the beaches, and you know you can't swim, and there's like there are shark attacks, and it's 
it's like this crazy time in Cape Cod, which is in Massachusetts, which is nearby. Um, and uh, I, I like, well, I have this app that tells me whenever there's a shark sighting and I just, whenever there's a shark sighting, I like see where it is on the map. And I just, I really want to go to Cape Cod and spend like a week at Woods Hole going around with all the shark scientists, just like just following them around and tagging them and like learning about how old they are and like where they migrate to. I just love it. I really hear the passion in your voice when you're talking about the sharks. I'm obsessed with sharks. I love sharks. And I and I like I could tell you why I'm interested in physics. Like, oh, I think it's like this important science. Like it's a very I like the abstract thinking. I cannot tell you why I love sharks. They're also soft matter though. Oh, well, everything's soft matter. I mean, but but yes, they're an, a phenomenal soft matter example because they don't have bones, they just have cartilage. What? Yeah, so sharks aren't sharks aren't bony, they're cartil cartilaginous. Genius. I didn't know that. I thought they had bones. No, they um, they're all it's all cartilage. So it's basically um, I mean we have cartilage too. We have you know, our nose is cartilage. But like imagine all of their structural their skeleton. They have a skeleton of, of cartilage. They don't have they don't have bones. And their teeth are those cartilage too or? Oh, I yeah, I, that's a good question. People are always like, oh, they're not bony, but the the teeth must be bone. I don't know about that. Because cartilage is not not as hard as bone, so. I would think that that the teeth should but, be bony. Yeah, the, the teeth the teeth do seem like bones. So, um, and maybe a shark scientist would be like, "Well, there's maybe some bone." Uh, you know, there's always uh, specificity. But like, um, I do know that sharks belong to the family of fish that are there's bony fish, and then there are basically there's the shark family, and so there's like sharks and stingrays and skates and um, all of those like flatfish are closely related to sharks because none of them have bones. Oh, I didn't know that. I mean, this is this is what I was learning. My, I would I would I would every like Tuesday, you know, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, I'd tell my mom like we have to go to the Carnegie Library, which is the library system in Pittsburgh, and um, I would I would for, I'd go to the kids section and I would just take out all the shark books and I would just like stare at them. I would just like I would you know I memorize. I have all these shark facts in my head, um, and so just get back to your question of do I did I want to be a scientist? Like that <laughs> strikes me as a very pro science thing like i was always really curious i just wanted to know everything there was to know about sharks and i still do so i think because i had that going on i think that sort of made me want to be a scientist because like you know you learn then you go to college and you, people start talking about you know there's this job where you get to be curious i'm like oh that sounds awesome so well but it is weird that you didn't start studying sharks oh yeah so this is really funny um you know my first real science class was like my first year of high school um i had this biology course and i was like oh man like i love sharks i want to become a marine biologist so obviously i have to learn biology and i took the bio course and i hated it like i hated it it was the worst course it was my least favorite course in high school i did not like biology they're like the the teacher in the course was like famous in pittsburgh because he's like one of the best high school science teachers on like the planet he's this really animated awesome guy uh shout out to mark Krotek. and um I, I just couldn't get into it. It was just like, it, I didn't like it. And I didn't like the pipetting. I didn't like how you had to like pipette it onto a plate and then like spin the plate. And like, I'd always spin it wrong. And I would always mix up my, you know, there's the dilution thing yeah, yeah. where you have to go from like 10th to a hundredth. I could never do that. Um, and, uh, you know, now I'm studying. And so then I was like, well, I hate bio. So I decided, and my dad was a chemist and you can't do what your parents did. So I did physics and, uh, <laughs> You know, and then I, and then I, uh, and then I, realized, I was like, no, I actually really like biology. I just don't like pipetics. So biological physics is my back door into biology. So I'm working my way back. And I think in like 10 years, I'll be studying sharks. So that's my goal. Why you became a botanist, your own? 
Well, actually, my, my dad was also really into plants and gardening and stuff. And my mm. grandfather was a farmer. It just felt natural to stay close to plants. I moved to trees, though. None of them were interested in trees. I am. Because you can't, you can't do what your dad did. You have to do something different. So he was a gardener, but I studied trees. Come on. Hey, different. Yeah, to- totally different. You can't compare it. Yeah, no, there's, there's nothing similar between plants and trees, other than the fact that trees are plants. That's something weird. I don't know why, but a lot of people think you have animals, you have plants, and you have trees. Trees, <laughs> trees are plants. These are plants. Um, I guess it's because of the wood, you know, like the bark. It's so funny that you say that because like now that I think about it, I do kind of put trees into a different box. I think it's because like trees are such like I grew up in Pennsylvania, which is like basically 90 percent of the state is just a forest. It's it's basically pure forest. Um, and uh, it's like, you know, the tree is such a deep rooted concept in like our, you know, collective cultural understanding of the world. Like trees were like the first gods because you're like they're all they're all they're everywhere. And you know, we burn them for wood, they they but they also house like all of the demons of humanity. They all live in the forest. And so I think like you know, trees are like this such as this this special thing because um our our lives are are and also they make atmosphere, they like are the reason that we're alive. Other plants do that as well, though. Oh yeah, right, 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 right. I always forget that. Good point, good point. That's why I have one here. Just so to, to have a little bit of yeah, it's actually I'm running out of oxygen. I should plant a, a bush. Right next to your shark poster. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's my shark poster, and then I have my bush that makes all my oxygen. <laughs> Did you see one, uh, a great a white shark in real life? No, I've never seen one in real life. Never no, I, I've one. never. Yeah, I'm. I, which is which is like my least favorite fact about myself. <laughs> How is that possible, Jack? I know, but the thing is, so great whites they can't keep them in captivity. Whenever they try to put them in aquariums, they die. And I've only really ever seen sharks in aquariums, so. Um, because they're like empowered, and this is one of the reasons why they're so mysterious and spooky is because they they're very hard to keep in captivity. Um, so you know, like I've seen I've seen plenty of sharks, um, like sand tigers and nurses, nurse sharks that, that you see in your local aquarium, but I've never seen a great white. Time to book a trip to Cape Cod. I know, I know, and shark season is over now, but there's really good sharks uh, in California and Mexico and South Africa, so I can always just book a plane ticket. Yeah, you, you can go everywhere and find sharks, apparently. All right, exactly. So we talked about how becoming a scientist was actually quite natural for you because mm-hmm. your parents are scientists as well. But imagine if you weren't a scientist, what would you be? Did you have a backup plan or something? That's such a good question. Um, well, the thing is, I would be a different form of scientist. I would be a, you know, I'm a physicist, but I would be a marine biologist. If I wasn't a physicist, if I wasn't a marine biologist, I think I'd be a linguist. I think linguistics is awesome. Um, if I wasn't like an academic, um, I have this dream of like owning a fishing boat in um, Alaska. A fishing boat in Alaska? Yeah, like, like, you know, my dream job, I think is, that's not academics, I think is, they're all bad career moves. You know, like, yeah, I'd like to be a, like being a professional DJ would be really cool. One question for the fishing boat, though. Do they have sharks in Alaska? Oh, you better believe it. They have, um, <laughs> uh, they have, they don't have great whites. Uh, they don't go that far north, but they, I think maybe in Alaska, you start to get, there are some, um, well, you get a lot of basking sharks, I think, which are these, uh, these big filter feeders. They're basically whales. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's some other sharks that are in the northern climes, um, well, there's this very famous shark called a Greenland shark. Have you ever heard of the no. Greenland shark? No. They live in they live in the Arctic, basically. They like live under icebergs. Um, but like 
There is a species, there's an individual found recently that was 400, that's 450 years old. Because they're, the water is so cold, they like don't age. Oh, really? Yeah, the, you can get these individuals. So I don't know if they have those in Alaska, but um, they would have them in Greenland. Cryopreservation. Exactly. It's, it, but they're like still alive, which is crazy. Um, and in Iceland, um, they eat them. But because of the, I don't know why this happens, they have high levels of mercury, mercury in their tissue. They, what they do is they, they take these sharks and they would, they hang them in barns and they basically let the, 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 um, the shark rot. So it's just rotten shark. And then there's like this layer of, of like, you know, deadly rotted flesh and then they scrape it off. And then you have like this perfectly aged piece of shark meat. It doesn't sound very appetizing, but people will, people will eat these sharks, um, in Iceland. And so I imagine that there may be some similar sharks going on in Alaska. So fermented meat really. Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah, which is yeah. which sounds which sounds pretty gross. It's I mean I bet it's got a very complex flavor. I've been to Iceland, but we we haven't tried it. You can get it in the um the grocery stores apparently. Whoa. Okay. Yeah, it's like still a thing. And yeah, I because I, I went as well and I asked a waitress this, and she said she's like, yeah, you should try it. It's like it's pretty crazy. It's apparently like it's like what grandparents eat. It's like what it's like a kind of an older person thing. It's a missed opportunity, Peter. You should have tried it. I don't think uh, I would have enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's something about it that maybe it doesn't seem that epic. Now that we're talking about what you would do, Peter, you're a physiotherapist. Yeah. If you were into academia, what would you do? Whoa, what a difficult question. Um, I think, especially because I'm very interested in, in the body and how the body, body functions, uh, I guess it would be somewhere in that area. But what exactly, it's hard to say. You can probably go in academia and physiotherapy, right? If you want. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Or medicine, something like that. Yeah. At, at this point, I'm very interested in, in what can happen to the body and um, what, what, what is needed to heal uh, certain problems. So I guess it, that would be very interesting for me also to, to do that in, in academia and to uh, do research in, in uh, how certain syndromes or certain problems can develop and how we can make it better and cope with it and jack can model the squishy tissue you need so that's perfect you kind of cheated though because you basically took your job your current job and you just turned it into academia that's you know come on i mean yeah but it's it's also what interests me so it is also <laughs> yeah that's that's yeah. that's very fair actually what i i think that i would also one thing that i think is kind of cool is um like sports science like um like uh, people who study like your VO2 max and like basically like how to become like a superhuman who has like, you know, has a resting heartbeat of like 30 BPM. I think that's really cool. And like the most efficient way to work. So like I, I do a lot of cycling and um, you know, the professional cyclists will have sports science, sports doctors um, like, you know, taking, you know, oxygen reading of their blood, like every, for every day for like a month. So they can like figure out how efficient they are as like a machine. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. I, I share your interest, Peter. I think Peter would enjoy to do as well. Yeah. So be before studying for a physiotherapist, I also studied sports sciences. Um, so I have a master's degree in, in sports sciences too. And I find it, found it very interesting. Uh, and I also thought about doing a PhD or doctorate. But I have to be honest with you, during my thesis, I felt like it wasn't really my calling. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, it was a lot of um, desk work, a lot of uh, looking uh, for articles, reading articles, um, and yeah, a really slow process really for me. So that's why I didn't really go further into that area. 
academia has some very non-glamorous moments. Yeah. Yeah. The thing I hate most about academia is the politics. Oh, yeah. But that's something you have in a lot of jobs, so... It's just a very particular brand of politics. I think my, uh, so, you know, my, my parents are academics and my mom always has this thing whenever I like, I'll complain about something. And her saying is, it's like academia, never had the problems been so big over something so small. And it's like, that's so to a T. Just to be sure, we still love science, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We sure do. Well, there were, actually, that were all my major questions. Just in, in general, if there's something that you want everyone to know or never forget, just because I started this, I do think that it's, um, this is kind of like my soapbox. And the thing is that sharks are the best. That's what my take-home message is. I love sharks, and you should remember that about me. No, I, I guess because this is for a general audience. Um, I get a lot of, you know, I talk to I have plenty of non-scientists in my life. I talk to them about my work all the time because I can never shut up. And um, one thing I think that sometimes gets missed about physics in general is um, the spherical cow joke that I taught in the, that I, that I gave in the beginning of the episode. Um, I think that's like, basically, that's exactly what physics is. It's the construction of the spherical cow. And my take-home message, I think, is like, when you hear about physicists doing something, that's what they're doing. Physics is this sort of construction of models that aren't really reality, but they so, they somehow also inform us about reality. And I think that's a subtle point because like, you know, when I talk to my like, college friends, they're like, hey, like, have you split any atoms recently? And it's like, even if I was a particle physicist, the thing that they're interested in isn't necessarily like the splitting of an atom. The thing that they're interested in is like the laws of nature. And what I'm interested in is like the laws of nature applied to living things. Like how do living things follow the laws of nature? Um, or how does the law, how do the laws of nature inform the, you know, function and evolution of living things? And so I think that's uh, sometimes missed when people talk about physics, but I think it's an important point that physics is a little bit more abstract and it's a little bit focused more on modeling and like background general thinking rather than something specific. That's a, a really nice take home message. Thank you. It's what well, it's, it's my favorite. It's my favorite, you know, fact about physics. So Peter, do you have anything to add a take home message of your own? Uh, not really, but I would like to come back to an earlier question uh, because you said I cheated. So um, I found <laughs> um, another thing I would like to uh, study and explore more would be would be space. I think um, I'm oh, interested yeah. in everything that happens in outer space. So a astrophysics. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. That's a great answer. Yeah, you've totally redeemed yourself. That's Thank sweet. You. And I, I, because yeah, space is like, yeah, the, it's the final frontier. It's like everything else. Like space is just everything else other than the planet Earth. That's 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 totally cool. Do you have a do you have a favorite part of space? My favorite part is that it's so immense that it's so huge that we even can't comprehend how 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 big it is. And the longer you think of it, the the more abstract and the more crazy it seems. Did you guys see the uh, Event Horizon Telescope? The um the picture of the black hole. Oh yeah 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 yeah. What what they said, yeah, you because know, it's like this array of radio telescopes, or I don't know what whatever type of telescope they're using. It's like this array of telescopes. They said that what they the telescope is so well resolved that it could take a photo of a quarter on the surface of the moon. What with like and and it's not it, like to basically to be able to do that you need a a, tele, a telescope dish the size of Earth. And what they did was they like had like a downsampled version of a telescope the size of Earth just because they had like six parts of a telescope. I think that is that's mind boggling. Yeah. Wow. That that is mind boggling. That that's insane. Yeah, because they have to take a photo of something that's, you know, so far away and so small relative to where we are. 
Okay, that that's a great fact, I think, to uh, end this episode. Shout out to EHT. <laughs> okay, thank you for joining uh, me today. Jack, Peter, thank you for sharing the information. See you for next episodes of Apple Finch Pudding. Mm -hmm.